the coming glory, the way God's glory comes to dwell among his people, beginning at the tabernacle. God's people are still at Mount Sinai, I believe, here at the end of Exodus. Moses went up the mountain, remember, and he received the Ten Commandments, the law, but he, he also received a whole bunch of other things. He received all these instructions about the building of the tabernacle. And then we read in Exodus about the construction of the tabernacle. And then we read of the Lord coming to fill the tabernacle. And so the last verses of Exodus are our text, verses 34 through 38. I'd like to read the whole chapter of Exodus 40 as we hear God's word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in it the ark of the testimony and partition off the ark with a veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and its light. Excuse me, and light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony, and put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and you shall Hallow it and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy, and you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him, and he, that he may minister to me as priest." And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father, and they, that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And it came to pass in the first month, on the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned sweet incense on it 
as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. And here's our text. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God's holy word. Let's bow in prayer and ask for his blessing. Our Father in heaven, as you visited your people of old, so we pray that we seated on this side of the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit, that you would visit us today. What greater glory we enjoy, how much closer you've come in Emmanuel, our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, Father, we feel the weakness that Israel knew, and we need your grace as much as they. Come help us, Lord. Bless your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, a month from today we plan to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus, the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ, God's Son, into the world. We're in that season of the year when many people put up lights and look for bright things and bright colors and so forth. But, of course, the glory that we want to celebrate is is greater than all the decoration. It's the glory of God himself come in his own son into our dark world. God's glory is his, his majesty. The word glory in the Old Testament means weightiness, heaviness. God's glory is his significance. It's his radiating presence. It, it's God revealing himself to us. There was a time when we lived in that glory. Adam and Eve in the garden. The garden was a temple filled with the glory of the Lord. All of creation was a kind of temple filled with the glory of the Lord. And Adam and Eve got to live their lives in communion with the glorious one. It was an indescribable privilege. And they threw it away. We threw it away. And God's glory shrank back, didn't it? The bond between heaven and earth was, was broken. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, unfit for God's temple. 
And the rest of the story of the Bible from Genesis 3 to the end is the story of the return of glory. The return of glory. Great news of Christ's coming is that God's provided a way to deal with our sin and to fit us for his fellowship, that he might live with us. And you know that verse of the Gospel of John, John 1.14, that the Word, that's Christ, the Son of God, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Son of God became flesh and he He dwelt, he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. That's salvation, when God's glory comes back to your life. But of course, that was not the beginning or the end, was it? Because the Bible goes on to tell us of a new day that's coming. Revelation tells us at the end that that God will one day dwell with men. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. He'll wipe away all the tears. And on that day, then God's glory is going to fill this new creation, this new city with such radiance that there's no need for sun or moon. But the glory of God is its light and the lamb is its lamp. That's our future life, to bask in the glory of God. But John 1.14 is also not just not the end. It's, it's also not the beginning. Because all the way up to John 1.14, God is at work through Christ, who is, according to Hebrews 1, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his image. Christ is at work, and and the pre-incarnate Christ, not yet in the flesh, the Christ of God is appearing through the Old Testament, preparing his people for his arrival in the flesh. So I'd like to trace out with you over the coming weeks, God willing, something of that preparation for the coming glory. That we might see the wonder of the glory of God coming to us. And we might be reminded that God has but one plan throughout all of the Bible. He has only one people throughout all of the Bible. And he only has one place throughout all the Bible to which he's bringing all of his people. And that's the new heavens and the new earth. Or his glory will fill it. So let's look this morning at Exodus chapter 40 here verses 34 through 38. To see that God's glory filled the tabernacle and in doing that it prophesied of God's glory that would fill the church and the new heavens and the new earth through Jesus Christ. I'd like to consider three things this morning. The first one is this, that God's glory came down to us. God's glory came to us. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's amazing. It's glorious. Think about what the tabernacle was. It was was a tent. We call it a tabernacle, fancy word. It's a tent. It's a tent. And God's glory encompasses it and it fills it. Now God's people, as we said, are here at Mount Sinai. They've received the Ten Commandments. They've received instructions about the tabernacle. In fact, if you're a father who's read through Exodus with your family recently at the table, maybe you got... You know, a bit weary going through all the details, right? All the measurements and and all the kinds of wood and fabric. And it goes through all the details that God gave Moses, build it this way. And then after that, it goes through all the details of Moses doing that, building it that way. You say, wow, almost seems wearisome. What's the point of all this? Well, the point is that the living God is going to come dwell among his people. Already back at Exodus 25, verse 8, God said, Have them make a sanctuary. Have my people make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. 
This was no ordinary tent. So the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures ponders upon every detail, impressing upon us, this is important, this is unique, this is unheard of, that the living God of heaven and earth would live in a tent among a people. It's amazing. Remember what these people were before God decided to pitch his tent in the midst of their tents. They were slaves in Egypt, and they were idolaters. But God redeemed them out of Egypt, not just to set them free, but to bring them into fellowship with Himself and to live among them, to show them His glory. At the end of Exodus chapter 29, God foretells what we read here in Exodus 40. Exodus 29, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Why did God take a people out of Egypt? So that he might dwell among them. That means, boys and girls, God wants to live with his people. So what does the tabernacle have to do with this? Well, well, the tabernacle, it's also called the tent of meeting. It's the place where God will meet with his people. Back in the garden, there was not need of a tabernacle. God lived with his people. He came and walked with them anywhere. All of creation was a temple. But now the world's become a place of misery, of sin, of guilt, of shame. Because of our sin. And so we become alienated from God. And we can't, we can't come near to God. The Holy God can't come near to us. Throughout The chapters leading up to to this one, God appears to his people only at certain times, only to certain people, only to certain places, only momentarily. But now God's going to come live among them. Not appear as a visitor here and there, but live with them. They're going to live in tents. I'm going to live in a tent. These are my people. Put my tent in the middle of them. I'm going to live with my people. So it takes a giant leap forward in the history of redemption here. This is a glorious moment. The tabernacle has now been completed. We read at the end of verse 33, so Moses finished the work. Okay, the whole tent, as God wanted it, has been built by the artisans. It's been set up. There it is. It's done. Man has done what God called him to do. And then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and his glory filled the tent. Shining presence of the Lord. Remember on Mount Sinai, that glory cloud had come. Shook the mountain. Smoke and fire. The people trembled. Oh, no, 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 Moses, never again. Let us not hear God's voice. You speak to him. And now the almighty presence of the living God comes to live among his people. In fact, it's almost like, Somebody said it's almost like God can't wait to do it. No sooner does verse 33 say the work is finished than verse 34. God comes. He's urgent. He wants to be there. He eagerly comes to live with his people. Why? Because we're a glorious people and we will enhance his glory if he can hang out with us? No. Other nations built their gods beautiful temples. This is just a tent. Among a body of sinners. The benefit is all ours. We don't enhance God. But he in his glory changes everything for us. 
What a gloriously gracious work that God's glory comes down to us. We don't pull it down from heaven. We don't purchase it with our good works. But the glory of God's grace descends to us willingly. What would Israel be without this glory? Just imagine that this morning for a moment that by some luck, some chance, some fate, this band of slaves from Egypt, they, they broke away from Egypt, they ran to, to the Red Sea, and by some luck or fate, the sea parted, and they made it through, and by some luck or fate, the sea collapsed upon their enemies, and now here we are, we're out in the wilderness, and we're a free people. And now we're going to have to decide, what do we want to be in life? Well, what will be our identity? And then... What's going to be our goal? And then what's going to be our standard of conduct? Shall we say people should steal or not steal? People should murder or not murder? People can steal if it's under $100 but not above $100. What, what, what will be our standards for living? The misery of a life without God's glory. started reading a book called You Are Not Your Own in which the author Alan Noble talks about the trouble of believing that we are our own. He's a college professor, I guess, if he still is, he, he was anyway, and hangs out with a lot of young people and notes the sorrows of our age. People are miserable, miserable. Disordered lives are the order of the day. Anxiety, boredom, hopelessness, fatigue. And he suggests that all of this, evidenced by all of us trying to self-medicate and cope with life, he suggests that this misery stems from, from living with this idea that I am my own. I am my own. I belong to myself. And he points out that though that sounds nice at first, it becomes an unbearable burden. Let me quote him. He writes, To be your own and belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. I'm responsible for living a life of purpose, of defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing my values, and electing where I belong. If I belong to myself, then I'm the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, choose my journey in life, or assure me that I'm okay. I belong to myself. goes on to point out that as we cut ourselves free of all morality defined by God, that we become responsible for the meaning in our own life, quote, with no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. And then he talks about the responsibilities of self-belonging. The responsibilities of self-belonging. Your life is never justified. You are always in the process of validating your existence. Your identity is never secure. You are always in the process of discovering and proclaiming and defining who you are. Meaning is never given. It is always being interpreted or reasserted. Values are never certain. They are always being renegotiated. And belonging is never attained. It is always dislocated. Do you... Wish that you could live like the world and just be free and be whatever you want to be and do your own thing? It's tyranny. It's oppression. 
You want to live a life where you have to define you and you have to figure out who you is and you have to set your own morality code and you have to prove your existence and you have to validate that you have a reason to live today and not die? all this talk. People saying, I want to feel alive. I want to be fulfilled. I want to do something that matters. The whole world without the glory of God is in desperate need of something greater than themselves. And to live without God is sheer slavery. Israel is a failed people. Yet God brings them to Mount Sinai and says, I am the Lord your God. So you are. You are my people. And he gives them his law code and he said, you will live in my holiness. And he proclaims to them their future. He gives them his presence. The glory of God in the midst of his people, that is their life. If this morning you're tired of trying to figure out who you are or define who you are or defend who you are or prove that you have a life worth living, or trying to weary of trying to find a reason to keep on going, then the answer is to behold the glory of the Lord. That is your life. That's your life. You won't find it somewhere else. You won't think you can have more life. I just sneak away from God's law for a minute and do that. Then I'm really going to be satisfied. It doesn't happen that way. You have a whole world caught up with trying to define who they are. And it's not going well. God's glory is our identity. God's glory is our life. And God's glory comes to us so graciously. Moses could erect the tabernacle, but Moses could not bring down the glory. The artisans could build and assemble this tabernacle, but they couldn't bring down the glory. But the covenant Lord, the Lord of love and life and mercy, he willingly comes. And that's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternal glory, comes willingly to dwell with men. Why will God live in a tent at this point in history? Because his people live in tents. God says, I'm going to live right with them. And so God's people are not left trying to create their own glory. And that, brothers and sisters, is what everybody else is doing in the world. If you haven't tasted the glory of God, if you're not living the joy of the glory of the Lord, then instead you're trying to create your own glory. And this is what people are doing, trying to make their lives glorious in some way. We more than ever have a culture that has declared that we are our own people. And never have we been more free to act as if we are sovereign, right? Then in this American culture, we have money, we have machines, we have ability to travel. Never have we been more free to define our identity. We have, we have these tools, Facebook and Instagram. Never have we been more free to do whatever we want because there's no boundaries. Now, you can choose your sexuality, you can choose your gender, you can choose anything you want. And how's it going for the world? Has it brought freedom? Suicide rate is, is just drastically going down. People are throwing away drugs. Everybody has something to live for. Everybody's happy. Not at all. 
people are miserable, wearied, exhausted, hopeless, taking their own lives, stuffing their bodies with substances. And the living God comes to a people he's chosen here and he says, I'm the answer to all the sorrows of your life. I am your life. My glory is your life. And true rest is found not in trying to work up some glory from below and make your life something, but rest is found when God comes to you and he says, I am your purpose. I am your righteousness. I am your future. You are mine. Now I don't have to get up tomorrow and, and make my life have dignity. My life has worth in Christ Jesus. My life has a glory not produced by the good things I do, but a glory bestowed from heaven. I have an identity now. I don't have to invent it. I don't have to justify it. I don't have to defend it. I don't have to compete with other people for likes on Facebook. I belong to God. I belong to Christ Jesus. I'm not my own. What a glory. The very meaning and purpose of life, the living God should come and visit his people to dwell with them. So his glory came to us, number one. But then you have to see, number two, that we can't handle his glory. We can't handle his glory. Verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now that's strange, isn't it? I mean, the tent is called the tent of meeting. And now you can't meet with God there. God's glory blocks the front door. God has come home, he's in the tabernacle, but you can't even make it to the doorbell to call on him. What's going on? Well, God is revealing to his people that his glory is not manageable. Can't handle God. Of course, if you could handle God, he would not be the answer to your boredom or your indifference. He would not be your comfort in the midst of fears or your assurance in times of suffering, if you could handle God, if you could manage his glory, then there's nothing to get excited about here. But God is making clear at his entrance into the camp of his people that I am not like you. I am the Holy One. The Mount Sinai, again, it was clear, and the mountain shook, and the people shook. But now that glory, that Shekinah glory cloud of God comes down to the tabernacle and God reminds his people, it's the same glory, it's the same God. And sinners cannot stand in my presence. But for the path I open up. What was that path? Some of it's already been revealed, but the next book of the Bible is going to be the the path laid out, the book of Leviticus. It spells out all the sacrifices, all the blood to be spilled. That's, that's the path into God's presence. Israel was to be well aware that they were not fit for God's presence. They should have been aware of that because you remember back in Exodus 32 what they did. When Moses was up there on the mountain, 
getting the law of the God who redeemed his people, the people were at the bottom of the mountain building a golden calf and worshiping an idol. We're not always as impressed with the holiness of God as we should be. We are by nature idolaters. And so we have to be reminded frequently of who God is. If we, if we are not reminded of who God is, we treat him rather lightly, rather casually, and then we begin to treat sin rather casually. It's not a big deal. God should just get used to it. No. He's God. Nadab and Abihu will, in the book of Leviticus, come rushing into the sanctuary to offer the worship they want to offer, and the fire will come out of the Holy of Holies and consume them. And God will say no. By those who approach me, I must be regarded as holy. We often have too light a view of our sin, don't we? We know that's true because we all had the experience of suddenly being convicted. Something we did last week. Reading the word or hearing a sermon and suddenly it strikes us, that was really wrong what I did. And when we see that, that now I see it's wrong, but for these past days I didn't notice it was wrong, then it reminds me that there's a ton of stuff in my life I don't realize how wrong it is. So God spends a lot of time in the Bible proclaiming his holiness, that he's utterly different, he's radiant in purity, and proclaiming our sinfulness. Now, eventually here, God's presence, his glory, will retreat to the Holy of Holies behind the curtain so that the priest can come into the tabernacle and do the work of ministry. But here at the beginning, God fills the whole thing to remind his people that he is God. So the tabernacle will have a twofold function. On the one hand, there'll be barriers everywhere, right? There's a a fence around the whole tabernacle complex. Then the tabernacle itself is shrouded. And then when you come into the first room in the tabernacle, there's a, a big curtain separating you from the Holy of Holies if you're a priest. And all these things will be shouting the news, be careful, God is holy, don't come close or you'll die. And at the same time, the tabernacle is laid out in such a way as it's a pathway. There's a door to come into it. There's an altar of burnt offering. There's a bowl of water. There's a path God is preparing to come into his presence. So both are true. You can't handle my glory and look at the road I've made for you to come into my glory. Tabernacle was the place where God would meet with men, where we could fellowship with the Lord. And so God himself provides the front door. And when Jesus Christ comes, finally our sin is truly dealt with. Not just blood sacrifice pointing to Jesus, but when the blood is shed on the cross, then what happens? Boys and girls, you remember what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? That curtain in front of the Ark of the Covenant, that curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, that curtain is torn in two. And God is shouting the news, I have opened the door to my house, come in. And you say, how can I come in? I'm a sinner. I will die. And God says, I've washed you. I've justified you. I've forgiven you in the blood of my son. 
And so the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Isn't that magnificent? This consuming presence of God's glory now becomes our delight that through the torn flesh of Jesus we have an entry and may come near. On this Lord's Day, we're offering worship up. We're caught up by the Spirit through faith to ascend to where the Holy God is. As we look forward to living with him in his temple above forever. And so our fellowship with God is not enhanced by downplaying God's glory, but our fellowship with God is enhanced by coming to know God's glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who removed our sin. And by learning to come more and more to God through repentance and faith. Why will the world not have God's glory when he offers it? The answer is because they will not repent and believe. You see, if the living God has condescended to us, if he's crouched down or stooped down from heaven to give us his glory, then he's also prepared for us a doorway into his presence in which we have to crouch down and humble ourselves by confessing our sin, by calling it what it is, what God calls it, treachery. And by putting our faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus. No one walks through the door into God's tabernacle standing upright. But only bent over with tears. Now you see all this that I'm telling you and all that God was showing us people here. Israel could accept all of this only by faith. And if they didn't accept this by faith, it would become to them a stumbling block and a cause for human pride. And that's what happens, doesn't it? When the prophets will come later and say to God's people, you have been unfaithful to the Lord, they will say, the temple? The temple? Don't we have the temple? God's going to destroy you. Oh, we've got the temple. And they could not understand what the temple was, what the tabernacle was before it. That it's a summons to bow down low and come along the only path that's open to you. The path of repentance and faith. Trusting in the blood of Jesus. And yet as we do that this morning, brothers and sisters, we're not home yet, are we? We're not home yet. And so there's one more point found in verses 36 through 38. And it's this. That the glory that's come to us. And the glory that we can't handle but through the blood of Jesus is the glory that's leading us to greater glory. Glory leading us to greater glory. Verse 36, when, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of God would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. God's going to lead his people. It's going to lead his people. They haven't defined their existence. 
God has defined it for them. You are my people, I am your Lord. They haven't defined the morality. God has defined it for them. These are the laws you will keep. And now we see they don't get to define their journey or their destiny. God says, you will follow me as I lead you by my cloud of glory. Now what's happening here is really what would happen among other nations. Their king would camp in the midst of the camp of his soldiers and he he would lead them into battle and where they would go. Israel's king is the Lord God. And the priests were to take from out of that most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, on poles, put it on their shoulders and carry it because it represented the throne of God. And now their journey from here forward will be the journey of following the throne of God and the cloud of glory to where God will lead them. God in the Bible defines what a good king is. It's one who leads his people on the paths of righteousness, who who blesses them, who supplies them, who cares for them, and defends them from enemies, who leads them to a good place. God is that king in Christ Jesus. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 1 a moment. Deuteronomy is the book where Moses preaches to God's people as they were sort of on the banks of the Jordan River, about to enter in. Moses is going to die Joshua's going to lead them in, and Moses is reminding them what all has happened and what God's will is for their lives. And in Deuteronomy 1.27, he's rehearsing their refusal to follow God into the promised land the first time. He says, Deuteronomy 1.26, Nevertheless, you would not go up into that promised land, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord. Verse 27, you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then Moses says in verse 29, Then I said to you, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. And all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God. Who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents. To show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. Isn't that sad? The glory of God came to lead his people, and they refused to enter the promised land. They were more afraid of their enemies than they were awed by the glory and the majesty of God. God's glory comes to his people to lead them. What's the glory of Christ doing it back there? You can read 1 Corinthians 10. It makes it very clear that it was Christ who accompanied the people in the wilderness. Christ is leading us this morning. Our identity has been defined. We belong to Christ. Our morality has been defined. We live by God's law. Our destiny is defined in new heavens and new earth. And our journey is defined. God will lead us in Christ by his word and spirit. And we're called to follow. What a burden of trying to make your own glory you imagine getting up every day of the week and thinking, I've got to figure out the path for my life. And if I don't figure it out, 
If I miss the path, if I take a wrong turn, then my life is over. If I don't choose the right career, if I don't find the right spouse, my life is over. God's people don't live that way. Our life is not our own. Christ, the glory of God, is leading our lives. He has a destiny for us. And every day is under his control, so every day has meaning. And so does the broken dishwasher and the unexpected bill and the hospital stay. It all has meaning. Christ is leading us to glory. And he's leading us all together as one body. It's remarkable, isn't it, that an Israelite could not take a piece of the glory and head out of camp to go his own way. But yet somehow in America, this is the thing to do. Take your piece of Jesus and go your own way. No, the Israelites are united as a company before the great captain, the Lord Jesus here. They had office bearers. Moses, priests, elders. They were knit together as a congregation. Is there freedom in visiting a multitude of churches all our life long but never joining one? Is there freedom in always retaining for ourselves the right to decide if this is a good church or a bad church? Or always retaining the right to decide what I'm going to do. I don't have to have elders over my life. We're always retaining my freedom and say I'm not going to commit to a body and have responsibilities in that body. Is that, is that joy? Is that freedom? Is that happiness? We have one identity together, people of God. And we are knit together by the blood of Jesus and by his spirit. We're responsible for each other. We have office bearers God has appointed over us. And by these office bearers proclaiming this word, Christ is leading us. And that is our hope. And saying, Lord, you will bring us to our destiny. And we're going to stumble along the way. But look at that last verse. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. They made the golden calf, and still God bore with them. They refused to enter the promised land, and still God stuck with them. This is some sticky glory, isn't it? God persevering with his weak people. Praise be to God for such a Savior. Our Lord Jesus, who has assumed our flesh never to lay it down. And has poured out his spirit upon his church never to call him back. And as we stumble and fall, the door of the temple is always open. The blood path has been laid. The basin is there for washing. And God says, come near. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you. 
humbled before your majesty. We so often play around with you with so little understanding of who you are. We are casual and flippant. We retain to ourselves the right to define our existence, our purpose, our goals in life. We thank you for showing us the tremendous life and freedom of bowing our heads before you, of confessing our sin, and of saying to the Lord Jesus, we will follow you all the way home to glory. Father, work these things in our hearts and lives. Magnify yourself. May the radiant glory of the Lord Jesus shine upon the lives and in the faces of your people as they worship you and as they speak of you and as they live for you. Take away all of our sin and bring us, Lord, all the way home to that place where your glory fills a new creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.